Our gospel this morning is from Matthew chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, You that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison? And did not take care of you. Then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, stir up your holy power this day and come. Send your spirit into our hearts, our minds, our souls, and our ears, that we might hear a word for us today anew, and that we too might then live out that which we believe. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. A couple of things as I get started. First of all, um, these days I sort of like being down here rather than up in the pulpit for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, I just, it feels better to me to be a little closer for some reason these days, and so I'm glad to be down here more with you, trying to be in the soup rather than sort of up there, up above the soup. Does that make any sense? Um, I was a little uh, amused last week when Mara, who was our guest preacher, uh, talked about how what they do at the University of Minnesota these days is they sort of gather together much like we do, they read the story, and then uh, they solicit responses from the congregation, and then the pastor goes last uh, and uh, gives their sort of take on the story. And she said, I won't do that to you. And I said, that's too bad. I do that to them all the time. Uh, so I, I'm not going to do that this morning, although I wouldn't be bothered if you did decide to interrupt me this morning and ask a question. Um, yesterday, Cindy, who read our uh, uh, story for us, sent an email and said, this story does not sound like, if, and let me get this right if I paraphrase this correctly, this does not sound like the God that I believe in in this particular story, something along those lines. And, and I'm guessing what I think you meant was this sounds like an awful lot of judgment and with sort of the eternal punishment bit. I'm assuming that's what you meant, right? 
Yeah, we're separating out sheep and goats. We're dividing people. Uh, And this probably doesn't sound a whole lot like the gospel and the good news of love that we so often talk about. I think you're right. Um, so this, and we've been actually dealing with a whole bunch of these stories uh, over the last couple of weeks. We're in the last few chapters of Matthew, and it's all of the stories that, that have been these sort of judgmenty stories have all come after Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And if you know anything about what happens to Jesus when he gets into Jerusalem, this is where all the trouble really starts. Um, coming into town for the Passover, and Jerusalem is like a just, it's a tinderbox ready to explode with both political and religious tensions all over the place. Um, and so I don't know if that plays any um, part in how Jesus' polemic actually works, uh, but it's helpful, I think, to keep that in mind. That's like part of the context. Um, the other thing that I think is super important to keep in mind, and this is maybe the point uh, I think that's most important, When we as Lutherans read the Bible, we read it through, the fancy word is hermeneutic. Uh, That's the fancy, like, theological word. But everybody who uh, read a novel in high school or even a junior high, you know that any particular novel or story has a main point or a theme, right? It would be sort of like if I looked out the window and said, oh, that's a black car. Well, that would hardly be the point if it was on fire, right? (laughs) Uh, When you're reading a novel or you're reading a story, there is an overarching theme or story or point or something like that. Uh, And I think we have to read these stories in the context of the larger story. Otherwise, we might miss the point. And so what is the larger story, right? What is the most important part of the gospel of Jesus? It's about love and forgiveness and hope and resurrection and new life and humility and God's grace and love. So if the, the reason to use that fancy word hermeneutic, if anybody ever says that, it's like the lens that you put on when you read something. Like, I am blind as a bat without my glasses. Like, seriously, all I can see are blurry things, right? But if you put your glasses on and you look through a lens or a hermeneutic, suddenly things come into focus and it makes more sense. Do you get what I'm saying? So you actually have, so, and, and I think this is true no matter what you're doing in life. We might call it as human beings our worldview. How do you view the world? How do you view other human beings? How do you view what's happening in the world? That's your hermeneutic, it's your point of view, it's what's your big story that motivates you. And in this case, I think what's really important to note, especially about this particular story, is Jesus, as as soon as this story is over, Jesus gets arrested and he's going to the cross. It's the very next thing that happens. So context is important. And what is, what's about to happen to Jesus? Jesus is about to be arrested. He's about to become a prisoner. Jesus is about to be betrayed and denied. Even by those who have followed him the most closely, Jesus is about to become a stranger. Jesus is about to be stripped and beaten. Jesus is about to become naked. Jesus is about to be given sour wine on the cross because he's thirsty. Uh, Jesus is about to be, I'm kind of pulling on strings a little bit for this one, but I had to get them all in there, right, just to make it fit to, you know, show I did my homework. Jesus is about to be sick with sin on the cross. The sickness of power and grabbing after control and authority. And then I think this is the, if you keep reading with the story, and I think we're supposed to, One of the very first things that Jesus does after he gets after the resurrection is he's hungry. (laughs) He needs to have a snack with his friends. Jesus is about to be hungry. 
These are all of the things that are laid out in this particular passage. When did we see you a prisoner or stranger or naked or thirsty or sick or hungry? Well, we're about to. In some ways, it's, it's lining up exactly what's going to happen with Jesus in the story right ahead. I keep looking at you, Cindy, because I'm trying to convince you, right? So, um, and if I'm not, just let me know. Because I'm not, I'm not sir, right? I mean, the, one of the great parts about the biblical story is that there are books and pages written about this, and none of them are right, and some of them are right, and some of them are wrong, right? So you actually, part of the reason I like being down here is I want to make sure you're engaging with this story because it makes a difference. So one of the things that I've, I've been reading a book by a guy named Richard Rohr lately, and he says one of the most interesting things I think I've heard in a long time. He says, God loves things by becoming them. Just think about that for just a second. God loves things by becoming them. He goes on further to say that God loves things by uniting with them and not excluding them. One of the interesting things about people who are poor or prisoners or strangers or naked or thirsty or sick is they often are what? Excluded. They're cut off. They're put away. They're, they're put aside. God loves things by becoming them. God loves things by uniting with them, not excluding them. And so I think in the big picture, what happens with the rest of the story? Uh, I should say that's what we mean by incarnation, right? That God isn't, God isn't the world, but God is in the world. It's sort of like a child is not their mother's being, but is part of the mother. And that's what incarnation is. That's who Jesus is, the incarnation of God. And I think the thing about Jesus, God becoming things, uh, loving things by becoming them, is a statement about wholeness and bringing the whole of creation and the whole of the person into wholeness. Um, and so in the resurrection, Jesus will forgive those who arrested him, he will forgive those who betrayed and denied him. He will forgive those who stripped him and beat him. He will forgive and love those who taunted him. He will forgive the crowds whose violent sickness and their addiction to power he literally held in his hands. He will forgive them. And then he invites everybody to dinner. <laughs> so I think we have to read it in the context of that overarching story, okay? So that's my first, I got three moves. That's my first move, okay? See if I'm convincing you. You can tell me now or later. How's it going so far? Okay, good. So this overall story is about love, forgiveness, compassion, vulnerability, humility, and wholeness, not purity. I think one of the mistakes that we make a lot is that somehow we read these stories and we think it's about purity. It's not. There's a big difference. Purity is about separating out. Wholeness is about encompassing everything. That's a big difference. Um, and worth, I think, thinking about. Okay. All right. Great. Okay. So that's the big picture of the big picture of the whole story. Let's now look at the big picture of the little story, this particular story in itself. What would you say is the main point of this story? Care for others. God is in every one of us. I love that bit, right? Yep, incarnational theology. God is here as part of all of us. Yeah, I think the big massive, or the big picture of the story, the hermeneutic is what? Where is Jesus? In the physical, in the grounded, in the humanity, in the earthiness of human beings. What does it say that in the person of Jesus, who is the embodiment of the spirit of God's creation, 
Jesus most clearly identifies with the hungry, the stranger, the naked, the thirsty, the prisoner, and the sick. Often we think of that as other people, but I think oftentimes that is also ourselves. Where is God's presence most closely related in this story? In those people. And I think that's the point. But one of the most interesting things I do think about that, that Brian so rightly pointed out, is that the people in the story don't know when they saw Jesus or when they didn't see Jesus. Which I actually take as sort of a little bit of a moment of grace. Because don't get too haughty if you think you know where God's presence is. Because nobody in the story did. What's interesting about the story is none of them, this is the thing I think is a little ridiculous about the story, actually, is that nobody defends themselves. How come the people who, uh, you know, said, well, we didn't, how did, we didn't know, we didn't see you. How are we supposed to know? How could we not see you? I, I can't believe that, that there's a ridiculousness to the story. How come one of them didn't step out and say, yeah, but you know what? There was that one time I gave like 10 bucks to church. And, and there was like this one time I like bought some Girl Scout cookies right? How come none of them step out and defend themselves? I find that to be just a really, the story in some point, in some parts, is ridiculous because it's meant to be jarring and startling. Um, they don't defend themselves, which I find that to be so interesting. They're like, well, wait, when did we see you? We don't know. That's such a weird response to me. But on the other hand, I also think it's a humility response that if, especially as people who are inside the church and people who are religious, oftentimes we end up becoming self-righteous, which is a purity move. We're in and you're out. And what Jesus is constantly doing is trying to create wholeness. Okay? So that's just a little interesting bit about that story to me. I, think, I find it actually a little bit ridiculous and actually a little bit graceful. Um, and I also think that's how the story is supposed to function what if Jesus is the light of the world, not in that he's the embodiment of light in the world, but more like the way a flashlight works? Jesus shines the light on the places where God actually is present. And because it's what they say is, when did we see you? And you need light to see. And that light can be in you or it can be on the person that needs to be seen. And so in some ways, I think the story functions as a light. Where is God most readily present among the hungry and the sick and the poor uh, and the lonely and the stranger, um, which I think is kind of how the story is supposed to function. It's supposed to catch you and be jarring. Um, I think there's an argument to be made that as Jesus is in Jerusalem, his stories get more poignant and more forceful because he's trying to make a point because he knows that the days are coming quickly. Um, and just as an aside, um, sort of a personal aside, when I read this story and I hear sort of the people go, "I oh boy, I just don't know when I saw you. Even the people who participated in caring for the hungry and the sick, and the, uh, they, don't, they don't know, they don't remember when they saw Jesus. Um, I've just decided I can't tell who's worthy of help anymore. I just can't. I'm just not smart enough. And it just seems to me that if somebody is either asking for help, is struggling with something, or even if they're trying to con you or lie to you, they're still worthy of your help because something's wrong. Um, and I find that to be actually enormously freeing. I just can't decide. I just know that all people need God's love and help. And if they're lying to me and trying to con me, well, I'll probably end up being fine. Great, there you had $50 and you went and bought a bunch of alcohol. What am I going to do about that? I don't know. You needed help. 
So I've sort of used these stories in some ways to just get over the fact that I'm not very good at judging who needs help and who doesn't. And just sort of gotten to the place where I think all God's people need love and help. And I find that to be enormously freeing. Now I don't have to judge anymore. I'm just like, oh, here you go. I don't know. Seems to me what you need. Okay? Um, I also find this story to be interesting because I think we live in a day when we want to be spiritual and not religious, and I'm not exactly sure what that means. And in this particular story, what I find is God's spirituality is pretty earthy. <laughs> it's actually in people <laughs> who are in need. That's a pretty physical, tangible, incarnational thing. So if you're looking for God's presence, it's not hard to find. Just drive downtown Minneapolis. I'll take you down to my parents sometime. They're standing on the corner asking for help. It's where Jesus lives. I have a friend um, who used to say, <laughs> um, God lives in India with the poor and comes to work in Minnetonka with the wealthy. Uh, and I think that might actually be quite true. Uh, the last little bit about the story, and you can decide whether or not you like this little bit, it's the little bit that I find the most um, helpful, is that uh, it's about the judgment bits. We don't like judgment. Who would, right? And why don't we like judgment? We don't like judgment because it's pain. It's emotional conflict. Uh, it's a dissonance inside ourselves, I think. Um, I hope it's a dissonance between the way the world could work and the way the world actually is working, even with inside ourselves. Um, and so in that regard, I think I can say that judgment is sort of a lot like physical pain. If you put your hand on a hot stove, good grief, take your hand off the hot stove. Um, why? It's bad for you. <laughs> um, and so if the story causes some judgment, why do we always see that as a bad thing? Could that not actually be God's voice inside of you calling into question who you are and who God is calling and willing you to be? We often see those judgment things in that visceral, interior conflict as some sort of pain and negative thing. But what if you hung with it for a little while? and let it teach you something. This is kind of silly and kind of dumb because it happened on the way in and I'm not sure exactly how it connects, but it does kind of. I was driving down the freeway this morning and I am not kidding, there was a duck, a mallard, a male mallard standing right in the middle of the freeway on 394. And my first thought is, duck, what are you doing here? This is a very bad place for you. Get out of the road. What if the story is sort of like that? Uh, we who are wealthy often hear these words of judgment, especially when it comes to the poor, right, as a visceral condemnation of who we are. Well, why not just allow that to work on you? And then what does that mean? And what might you do in response? Duck, get out of the road. It's bad for you. Do you see what I'm saying? What if that's actually God's voice inside of you, calling you to think about living and being differently in the world? I don't know. I like to think of it that way. One other thing. Uh, one, other, one other quick thing. Um, one of the other things about these stories is we, it's also helpful to keep in mind that these stories were written by people who were oppressed minorities. This is not the voice of the rich and the powerful. These are the voices of the poor and the marginalized. They are written by the hungry and the poor and the naked and the sick, the very people that, so Je that Jesus so attracted to himself. And one of the things that I've learned is, and Carson Dahlem a couple of Sundays ago just absolutely nailed it, um, is that to those of us who are wealthy and privileged, 
equality often feels like oppression and judgment. And I know that oftentimes what happens is the people who are poor and oppressed are often the very, very ones who just hunger for God's righteousness to finally break into the world because they viscerally feel put down, put out, and excluded. And the only language they have is apocalyptic language where God's righteousness finally breaks into the world and cracks it open because they have no power and no voice to change anything. And I think that's the voice that's here. And I think it sounds very different if you were to read this story in a place where maybe you are a poor minority or oppressed. I think it probably sounds a lot like hope. (laughs) Because finally, righteousness breaks into the world in a real and visceral way. So I'm, I'm not saying the story shouldn't make us uncomfortable. I think, in fact, it should. But on the other hand, I also need to look at it always through the lens of what happens after Jesus gets down off the cross and finally is resurrected. He has dinner with the people who stripped him naked, who called him a stranger when they knew his name, who made him thirsty by hanging him on the cross, who made him a stranger and betrayed him, who beat him and stripped him naked. The people that he invites over for dinner is all of us. Amen.